Let us pray. May the words of our mouth and the meditation in our, of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our text for today is found either on the back of your bulletin. I'm going to be reading through it as I speak this morning. It's John chapter 9. Or if you have your Bibles, you can open up. We're going to be pretty much taking it, not necessarily verse by verse, but certainly section by section. You see the large number 8 up there. I think when I initially decided to put this sermon together, I called it 8 Great Mistakes. Uh, In retrospect, I probably would change the title to, Do You Know Your Blind Spots? Either way. But what we have here in in John chapter 9, we find people making and expressing about eight serious errors in judgment that affect themselves and other people. What we have here is an interesting interaction between Jesus and his 12 disciples, the blind man, his parents, his neighbors, and the ruling authorities of the day, the Pharisees. And what's in this chapter, the fears, the misconceptions, all of the misunderstandings expressed by all except Jesus, are common fallacies, common misconceptions, even in our day, as hopefully we'll see as we look at the scriptures. Well, let's begin at just looking at the first three verses of chapter 9. It says, and he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. Now I'm going to go back and just read part of this again, because this is really the first fallacy. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind? Good question. You know, belief in life is really nothing new. This was taught by many people in the time of Jesus, and it is from this belief that his disciples present this question to Jesus. However, the notion that there is life before one is born is a fallacy then, even as it is today. I mean, think about it. Did this man sin before he was born? And so he was therefore born blind? Or did his parents somehow engage in some sin before his birth so that they gave birth to a son who was blind? Now, those are very serious questions. And maybe some of you remember a book that was written by Rabbi Kushner. It was called, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? You ever heard that one? Have you ever thought that? Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, my answer to that is, show me a good person. And if there is such a thing as a good, godly person, who better to handle something bad than a believer? See, belief in this, I mean, these are serious questions. And I guess it's kind of part of our human nature that we want to pinpoint the cause of our problems. I mean, either the individual has somehow sinned or someone maybe very close to them has sinned. And thus it is said that the problem exists somehow because people have sinned against God. Now, of course, we all know from the Bible, uh, the wages of sin is what? Death. Uh, We do reap what we sow. 
See, we, we cannot ignore that fact. However, there are thousands upon thousands of God's precious and beloved children who are suffering uh, under an unbearable weight of guilt and condemnation because of a notion that somehow they have sinned and therefore God is somehow punishing them. But when you ask people, they don't know what their sin is. I mean, I've heard people over the years say, oh, pastor, God is really punishing me for something. Or God is punishing me for, for God only knows. Or I don't know why this has happened because I don't know what I did. Now, stop and think, what's wrong with that conversation? Put yourself on the pastor's side of the desk. What's wrong with that conversation? Is God somehow guilty of playing a silly cosmic 20 questions game with somebody? Well, the answer is absolutely not. I mean, does God sit up there in heaven and just kind of punish on impulse? Uh, and again, we'd say absolutely not. And I would tell you that if God punishes you for a cause, he will reveal the cause if you ask. And when we ask why, his answer will probably be because. See, to identify sin, to confess and repent of sin is to receive God's forgiveness, his cleansing, his pardon, his freedom from condemnation. I mean, very simply, we need to remember God forgives sin. If that's true, then why do so many people dwell under this cloud of guilt and condemnation and even anxiety, which hinders their prayer life and even hinders their witness for Christ? You know, I thought about that, and I wonder if the answer might be, like James says, you have not because you ask not. See, these verses show very clearly that God has a plan that is far beyond our ability to comprehend. They show that we do not always have neat, little, tidy explanations that can solve some of life's great, big, huge puzzles. So what do we do? Well, my simple answer to you this morning is we rest upon God's infinite love and God's infinite wisdom. Let's move on in this story, verses 6 to 8. It says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back. See, isn't that a cool, isn't that a kind of cool story? I mean, you were there and you saw Jesus spit on the ground and make mud, little mud pies and then rub it on some guy's face. But you kind of wonder, what the heck is going on here? See, here's the second fallacy and misunderstanding. It's to think that God always works according to uh, certain clearly defined lo logic or decorum. But it's a mistake to think that God can somehow not operate out of the conventional, acceptable methods that most of us would use. I mean, you would almost expect, oh, Jesus, why didn't you just say, hey, see. See, Scripture and life's experiences show that God is not limited by anything. I mean, these verses are a case in point. Now, just think about some other ways. I mean, Peter, the Bible says, where he walked. His shadow passed over people, and they were healed. It says that cloths and handkerchiefs from Paul brought uh, healing to the sick and, and dro drove out demons. 
I mean, Jesus, when you study his life in the biblical narrative, he uses any number of unconventional methods to bring healing. He touched a leper. He spoke a word from miles away and some sick person got well. He makes this mud pack out of clay and smears it on a guy's face and tells him to wash it off. He forgives a guy's sin before, and, it's, and after that, suddenly the guy is healed. He took a dead girl by the hand and said, get up, raise her from the dead. He stood up in front of Lazarus's tomb. He'd been dead four days. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And out he shuffled, wrapped yet in his grave clothes. He put his fingers in a man's ear one time, spit on the ground, and said, Epitha, which means open up, and the guy could hear. He spit in a blind man's eyes after leading him outside the city limits. Jesus stood over Peter's mother-in-law, and he rebuked the fever. And you can go on and on. He didn't always do it the same way. God works the way God wants to work. Well, let's go on here, verses 10 to 12. So they say to him, then how were your eyes open? They're talking to the blind man. He answered, the man Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes. And by the way, the word anointed here literally means he washed my eyes with mud. And he said to me, go to Siloam and you know, wash your face. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he, the blind man, said, I don't know. Don't know. Now, here's, I guess, would be the third fallacy, is that only saved people, only religious people, only spiritual people get something from God. But let's think about this. This blind man never saw Jesus before. Why? He was blind. He didn't know who Jesus was before all of this. Uh, The theological religious questions didn't come until after the healing. In fact, you have to skip down to verses 35 to 38. It said, Jesus heard that they had cast him out out of the synagogue. We'll get to that in a while. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now, let's go on to verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, then how can a man who is a sinner do such great signs? And there was division among them. See, here is another fallacy, maybe number four. It's a fallacy or mistake to say, if you don't worship God... Or serve God as we do, you're probably not of God. Or to say, if you want to be a Christian, you cannot be a Christian until you look like a Christian, act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, believe like a Christian. Oh, that wears me out. When I preached at my home church for the first time, St. John Stewart was on the 40th anniversary of my confirmation. And uh, my mother uh, remarried and had four more boys. And one of them, his name is Patrick. Patrick's got hair that goes way below his waist. He's kind of a recluse, hermity kind of guy. He is not what you would call church broken. 
And so in this big church, and I preached back at St. John's in Seward, Nebraska. It's a church of two or three thousand people, big church. And when I walked out, Patrick, who had a brand new white shirt on, stood up and he went, Yo, Barry! (laughs) And I'm sure that there were some little gray-haired ladies in that church, or blue-haired ladies, who went, What's he doing here? We don't do that here. I know people who have actually heard something in sermon and went, Amen! And everybody turned around and went, What do you mean he's not praying? (laughs) See, On this occasion, the question was of Sabbath observance. Now, in today's language or in today's churches, it would include any number of doctrines or rituals or ceremonies and observances that tend to divide Christians from Christians and church from church instead of promoting unity among all believers. Teaching in the prison this last week, and we talked about Jesus we, we really talk about the last seven days of Jesus' life. Well, we know that on that Thursday, he instituted Holy Communion, what we call Monday Thursday. And some, one, one of the inmates, one of the, the men raised his hand and he said, this uh, body and blood, so he was giving us this symbolic uh, action, act, act. And I said, well, it's a symbolic act if you're Baptist. And he said, I'm not Baptist. I said, well, then you're an assembly of God. He goes, nope. I said, Pentecost. He goes, yeah. And so I did some teaching on communion real quick. And I said, you know, there are really three different views of communion. There's this reformed that says, when Jesus said, take, eat, and take, drink, what Jesus said, this represents my body, this represents my blood. So you just have kind of a, a remembrance service. And that tends to be... Pentecostals and Baptists and people like that. And I said, then you've got another group of people here. By the way, this is just bonus teaching this morning. Uh, Well, you've got the Catholic group, and they teach what's called transubstantiation. And if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, you might hear the tinkling of a bell, which is when the, the bread and the wine change into the body and blood. So that literally, as you receive the bread, it changes into the body of Christ, the wine being the same thing if you happen to be in a Catholic church that serves wine. And then there is this whole other group, mainstream people, who practice what we call real presence, and in there are Lutherans and a few other denominations who say that when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood, that's exactly what he meant. Or as Luther argued, is, 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 and always is, is. That's pretty pithy, isn't it? Now, when I was done with that, I said, well, what do you all think? One guy says, Doc, which one are you? I said, I'm that one over there. I'm the real presence guy. What about Miss Cheryl? She's in the same boat. I said, how many of you are over in this boat? Three quarters of the hands went up. How many of you are in the middle boat? The rest of them. How many in our boat? Just me and Miss Cheryl. Now, they were sitting there wondering, and now I'm going to ask... I'm going to ask you the same questions I asked them. When, where, and how was the problem of sin settled? Where were our sins atoned for? I mean, when, where, and how were we reconciled back to God? I'm going to give you the answer. If we, if we believe Scripture, and we ought to, after all we are Missouri sinners, or Missouri sinners, First uh, Peter 1 says that it was at the cross of Calvary 
by the atoning death of Jesus the Christ, by the shedding of his blood and subsequent resurrection and ascension, where he now reigns at his Father's right hand and is able to save all that come to God through him. Now, I said, at the end of time, whether you practice communion this way, this way, or this way, which one of those ways will get you into heaven? Well, they know the answer to that. You know the answer to that, don't you? One guy says, well, the Bible says, which is a good way to start, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm not saying that the way we practice communion or baptism is the proper way. Not at all. But sometimes we need to move beyond things that divide us as brothers in the faith who truly believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Things that divide churches. I grew up in the community of Seward, Nebraska, where if you weren't Lutheran, you were quiet. You know, where only Lutherans were going to heaven. And guess what? If you believe that, when you get to heaven, your room probably won't have any windows in it, so you won't have a heart attack when you see a few Catholics and Baptists and everybody else wandering through the place. You know, it is, it, it is amazing, but absolutely true, that Jesus died and rose again without the help or benefit of any church or any denomination that exists today. He did that through the power of his Heavenly Father. I mean, it's a fallacy to believe that people who do not observe our church, our forms, our dogmas, our doctrines, either are now or never going to be saved unless they believe like us, or whether they chant liturgy like we do, or march to the beat of a drum of our spiritual approval and sanction. And on. They're, they're just, you know, Christians are people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, what the Lord said to us back in um, Isaiah, uh, in the 66th chapter, he says, this, this is the one to whom I will look, uh, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So if you read Isaiah 66 too, guess what? That is true regardless of race, creed, or color. Let's go back to the story here. It's kind of like, meanwhile, back in the story. Verses 18 to 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. Wow. And had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now he... See, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, in other words, he's old enough, he will speak for himself. And then this key sentence, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Here's another fallacy. And this has to do with the fallacy of the fear of men. I mean, this is the fear that says, play it safe. Soft-pedal your experience with God. You see, a basic human need of ours is to be accepted, to feel wanted. And we'll almost sometimes do almost anything to feel accepted by other people. <clears throat> and here this blind man's parents feared being excommunicated from the synagogue. Being tossed out of church, being excommunicated. It was a serious measure to be invoked. I mean, it involved a lot of consequences, both socially and religiously. Now, we don't think about this, but guess what? They would be forever treated as one who died in their community. 
No circumcision would be available to their children or their children's children, which literally meant that they were shut out from any avenue of God's mercy, at least according to the Jewish religion. No one would mourn for a single person in that family when they died. No one but the wife and children could come close enough to the man in that family to touch him or embrace him in any way. I mean, so this was serious business getting tossed out of the synagogue. And so this fear, this fear of being dismissed from the church so paralyzed them (coughs) that they would not admit the obvious miracle that had taken place in their own boy. In essence, they would only give what? Name, rank, and serial number. But you know something? They weren't alone, as you read your scriptures. In the book of John, in the 12th chapter, you go a little bit further if you get your Bibles, go to John chapter 12, verse 42. It said, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be, what? Put out of the synagogue. See, fear of man can have consequences. But if you know Matthew chapter 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Or elsewhere in the book of Mark, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of God, will also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Now, going on, verses 24 to 29. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The blind man answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's actually written on my tie. I once was blind, but now I see. I wonder where that comes from. I think we'll sing that at the end of the service today. And then they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? Oh, that must have really ticked him off. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Here's a sixth mistake. And that is to not admit the possibility of a greater revelation of truth than what we presently know or experience. Sadly, there are people who sometimes reject out of hand any possibility that they should be anything other than what they are right now spiritually. In essence, they're saying, hey, Mama and Papa believed in Moses, therefore I believe in Moses. It's kind of like saying, Mama and Papa were Lutheran, therefore I am Lutheran. (coughs) Or, as one dear lady one time told me, I am Missouri Synod Lutheran from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, and if I found one hair that wasn't Missouri Synod Lutheran, I would pull it out. I can't remember whether I laughed or not. It just struck me as really big funny. I mean, just thank God that thousands of people in all sorts of Christian denominations have moved past Moses and have discerned the fullness of life and joy in Jesus. Now, verses 33 and 34. If this man were not from God, the blind man say he could do nothing. They answered him. 
you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. I mean, they got rid of him, tossed him out of the synagogue. I thought of another fallacy here, a mistake, and the mistake is to be unteachable. To be unteachable. Especially if the teaching comes from an unlikely source. I mean, these Pharisees rejected the testimony of a former blind beggar because he did not meet their religious or educational or social standards. However, we know that God can speak and teach in a whole lot of different ways. Let me give you a couple of extreme ways that God teaches us. In the book of Numbers, chapter 22, a donkey talked. I always figured that if God could talk to a donkey, he'd probably talk to, talk to me. Remember, Balaam's donkey spoke the word of God. In the book of Acts, there's, a, there's a, a more relevant example in chapter 18. It's wonderful to see how the Lord worked through two people, Priscilla and Aquila, to broaden the, the understanding of the things of God. See, so, see, sometimes it is the, I don't like to use this word, but the lowly layman or the, the, the pew sitter who may, may know a thing or two more than the person in the pulpit think that could possibly be, that a person in the pew may know a thing or two more than the person in the pew in the pulpit. But if you don't believe that, you better get over it, because I don't know everything. As I've told congregations I've served before, if you're counting on me for everything, you're in deep weeds. I don't know everything about everything. And some of the best teaching and some of the best learning I've ever had, I've learned from people who are in the pews who also studied their Bible. I sat under the teaching this last week of people that weren't necessarily Bible college trained or seminary trained. A couple of them were. I heard some of the best teaching I have ever, ever heard on the Lord's Prayer from a man who's never done anything but read his Bible and study it. I heard some of the most powerful teaching on the book of 1 John from a man who's in his first year of Bible college. I've never heard anybody teach scripture like that before. I couldn't take notes fast enough. Now going on here, verses 39 to 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things, and they say, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you, wouldn't, uh, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see. Your guilt remains. And here is perhaps the eighth and most serious fallacy and mistake made by literally millions of people. is to deny the fact of sin in their life and... Even worse, deny deny the fact that they actually need a Savior. There's an old proverb that says, There is none so blind as he who will not see. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or 1 John 8.10, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I've done a lot of driving in the last month. You all know that Nancy, well, I've only been home maybe five or six days this entire month of March. Nancy got me beat because she stayed home sick. But I've done a lot of driving from Texas up through Illinois and Missouri, and then all the way down through Mississippi and through Louisiana. 
And one thing I discovered, any of you drive a lot, you know that uh, drivers have blind spots. Uh, we know that we had better check our blind spots before we change lanes. That's why you have rear view mirrors and side mirrors, and sometimes it's even an occasional glance, and sometimes it's your personal GPS who sits in the seat next to you who's watching out for you. Uh, but you do that before you make any sort of move. But the thing about spiritual blind spots is that there is all the difference in the world between those who know they have blind spots and those who do not know they have blind spots. Now, in our text today, Jesus says there are essentially two different kinds of people. There are those who were blind, which he came to make see, and there were those who thought they were seeing, but were actually blind. Actually, both of these people started out blind, but there's a difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world to Jesus if you know you're blind and if you don't know you're blind. I mean, if you have a blind spot and you know you have a blind spot, it is going to affect the way you proceed. I mean, a few years ago, I started having these black things kind of flipping across my eyes. And, you know, I didn't want to have too many black things fall across there before all I could see was black. You know, so what do you do? It causes blind spots. They're called cataracts, right? And so I went to my doctor and he just lasered out the old lens and popped in the new one and lasered out the lens and popped in the new one. And help me with my physical blind spots. Well, if you have a blind spot and you know you have a, and you don't know you, and you have a blind spot, I mean, it affects how you, you proceed. I mean, you're, you're going to act with more compassion and with more caution. <clears throat> you won't be surprised and unsettled to learn that there was something happening that you didn't know about. You won't be amazed to learn that God was doing something even without your permission. I mean, you know, when you know you have a blind spot and and find out that you've been hurting someone else as a result of that blind spot, you're going to feel remorse and you're going to start changing your behavior so that you check your blind spot and and prevent the hurt um, from happening. When you have a blind spot and you don't admit it, when you think you can see like these Pharisees in the story and you really are as human as the next guy, you don't take caution where you're going and you don't care who you hurt and if you someone gets hurt you don't realize that it was a result of your blind spot you'll probably blame the victim for his problem the whole point of today's message is to remind you that everyone has blind spots we all do every last one of us who's here today every one of us is susceptible to not seeing things that God is doing To not see sometimes how our behavior affects other people adversely. I mean, none of us is immune to that kind of blindness. That's why the hope of the gospel is so important. The hope of the gospel is when it comes that we acknowledge our blindness. Like John Newton who wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. I mean, here was a man who captained a slave ship that was responsible for the death of many people. And he suddenly realizes he stood aboard that ship and and wrote those words, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. You know, for him to be able to say, I once was blind, but now I see. Now what made that possible? It was the love of Jesus Christ. And what did he do once his eyes were opened by the Savior? But what do we do once our eyes are opened by the Savior? We live differently. We now live 
with caution in our lives. We proceed with caution as we deal with other people. And believe me, friends, we all need to see just as clear as Jesus does. That's why I can end this message by simply saying, I too once was blind, but now I see. What amazing grace. Let's stand now, and we're going to join together in a profound...